Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Challoner and you join us on a cool and autumn day in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on today's programme, I'm delighted to be joined by Abigail Simon. Abby is the founder and CEO of the Yum Yum Food Company, a catering company which provides a cost-effective food service for nurse and primary schools. Um, Abby, very warm welcome to you today and thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you, Scott, and thank you for inviting me. It's a real pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves. Um, Normally, we would dive straight into the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, let's start with that. I'm sure you'll agree that for leaders in all walks of life, this has proven to be one of the most significant challenges of our time. But how has it affected you and your operations at the Yum Yum Food Company over recent months? Well, um, because Yum Yum caters directly for nursery schools, when they first announced announced, um, lockdown on March the 20th, I pretty much had to shut up my premises for the first time in nearly 20 years. So we were closed throughout um, lockdown. Um, We did have a few nurseries that were catering for key care worker children, and they needed our support, but it was um, challenging to provide that support because the volumes were so small, and um, you know, the, so our business is based on delivery costs versus volumes, and it was just a real challenge to get through to those few nurseries that needed help. What we managed to, and predominantly, when I realised that my premises would be closed, and I realised it would be for quite some time, I thought I've got two thousand square foot kitchen premises in central London. What do I do with them? And by March 23rd, I'd started catering for those in need via the likes of social media. I got volunteer chefs and volunteer drivers, etc., and lots of charity workers. I connected with, um, we're working even now today, we're still working with the Felix Project, who deliver, who reposition food that would otherwise go to waste and give it to people that can um, serve it for charity use. And so we just started making meals. The first day, I think we cooked about two, three hundred meals, and then it got to three thousand meals a week. We were going out to various homeless centres, hospitals. Um, we covered a lot of NHS workers at the beginning, and we also worked with various local charities and local counsellors who knew of individuals that were stuck at home that were hungry and for whatever reason couldn't get access to food, be it the fact they had no income, no food stamps or that they just couldn't leave their you know their homes and so that's how it started it was quite um a baptism of fire should we say it was a huge learning curve for me but i'm glad i did it it's so so inspiring how you've been able to adapt and divert your services to helping those in need during this time for sure when there hasn't been of course the need required by schools that have been closed to of course provide the usual service um but when you've been um, sort of adapting to this new reality, you say you've learned quite a lot during this experience. So what sorts of things have you sort of learned positively from this? Well, I wasn't aware of what happened. So, for example, if someone's on universal credit and they have no money left, this is pre-COVID, it was, as my understanding is, they had no money left at the end of their um, week or month for food, they were given food stamps which is basically some form of 
coupon or ticket, if you like, that allow them to go to a local food bank, which may just be um, a church hall that's opened on a Saturday morning and collect um, essentials for the week. And all that stopped with COVID. So you had lots of individuals that were suddenly stuck at home with literally no access to food. And I heard lots of horror stories and directly, you know, supported people myself that I, that I knew that, that came to me because they had really terrible situations. Um, we had one gentleman who'd lost nearly two stone in weight by the time we found him or knew about him. And he, he was pretty much starving, you know. And we had lots of different scenarios like that where by the time we got to hear about people that they were in such a bad state, which was really shocking. Um, I didn't... I, I think we're always aware, you know, living in London, that there are people in poverty more or less than others. But to really work through it on that level and to really understand that the conditions that COVID created, that overnight um, these people could not get access to food and there was no one else there to help them because all the normal services had to close. So that was a huge learning curve to, to appreciate, you know, what the government was facing as well to try and help these people and to try and change their tactics of support literally overnight on a huge scale. And of course, so much pressure has fallen upon leadership figures during this time to provide vital um, reassurance to people, inspiration, motivation to keep on going. But what is it that motivates you in a leadership role to carry on during a time like this? I can imagine for you that helping those in need and the need for that is one big thing. Yeah, well, I mean, I had two young children at home. It was a huge struggle for me to um, suddenly start this charity work that took over my life 24-7 and start and, and still go through the experience of lockdown, homeschooling, um, trying to support my staff. It, you know, it was, a, it was a very steep, excuse me, an immediate learning curve. But my focus is the fact that even now we jump sorry, excuse me, Yum Yum still supports um, food banks. We have a delivery from a Felix project every week, and it goes out to a variety of food banks. The need is going to become even greater and overwhelming, in my mm. opinion, because the the more people come through furlough and don't have a job at the end of it and simply can't recreate, there's many industries where the jobs just won't come back to life, with, certainly I would believe within the next year or so. And so these people, through no fault of their own, literally won't have access to a regular cash flow and will need more support from food banks and things like that. And so the need to carry on um, to support people that are less fortunate possibly than ourselves in this area, that's where it comes from. And can you certainly see there being a... COVID-19 hangover as it were for your industry as well whereas there are going to be lingering effects for quite some time yet um, in the wider catering sector well definitely the wider catering sector has been you know hugely hit and continues to do so Um, but certainly for my sector and what we're doing in terms of education we, we also continue to have that hit so for example our nurseries that have returned their numbers are still very much diminished. And within that, the, the parents that, the, um, that they want to start school meals again are also diminished. So there's a real balancing act between trying to continue to support our nurseries for the children that do want catering and for those and to be able to get the right um, numbers out to the right nurseries. So it's a, 
yeah, I don't see this returning. Certainly not for from the education sector. I don't see full services and catering returning before January at the earliest. Mm. And I'm also experiencing it in my son's primary and my other son's secondary school because they've got obviously got caterers at their school. And because of the requirement to have more space within the lunch area, they have a number of two days a week, my, my primary school child will have lunch at his desk in his classroom, which is not something that I've ever chosen for him. And the options are so limited that I'm better off catering for him myself on those days. So I think mm-hmm. um, education caterers, you know, across the sector are going to be suffering for some, quite some time to come. And what was it initially that inspired you to get into this specific industry? Because I understand that um, prior to launching the Yum Yum Food Company in 2003, you did have a successful career in the city working on various IT projects. So what prompted that real change in direction and sort of made you realise that going into business within this sector was going to be the way forward for you? Well, it was a couple of things, really. You know, my time in the city, for me personally, it was a phenomenal experience, but I always knew that when it came to wanting to become a mother, that I wanted to be available to my kids, and the city does Mm. kind of own you on a certain level, and the hours are quite um, challenging to to juggle that with young parenthood. So I always knew, looking ahead, that I'd want to leave the city at some point, and then I took a year out and I spent a year in Zimbabwe volunteering in this children's home. And the children's home was really um, hugely um, poverty-stricken. And there were many sad stories, shocking stories that came out of that experience. So I knew that by the time I wanted to come back home, I didn't just want to go back into the city. And this opportunity presented itself. I'd always loved catering. My, my, you know, growing up, my friends had always said I should be in catering. And so it just naturally fell into place and it took off from there. It's absolutely fantastic, the story as to how you ended up doing what you're doing now. Really, really inspirational. And just to, speaking on um, inspirations um, as well, Abby, um, were there any sort of leadership figures perhaps that you sort of looked up to throughout your career that maybe you still draw inspiration from now? Um, well, I've always admired anyone that kind of stands true to themselves regardless of what the industry has been in. And obviously within my industry, the one leading figure for me was always Annabelle Carmel because she's such a big name in um, childcare nutrition. And when she she actually approached me about a a year or so ago um, to talk to me about maybe getting involved in Yum Yums. And then we spent a year talking and looking through recipes and working out how her recipes would work to scale on what I was doing. And we ended up deciding to join forces um, and launched in January. <laughs> our main launch, I'm laughing because our main launch was due in um, Nursery World in March 20th to 21st, and we all know what happened then. So we'll, that all got put on hold for another year, and we're hoping to start again with our main launch next year. And just thinking about um, the uh, the future, because we know that we are going to have to continue to adjust to the new normal over the next 12 months. What do you think is next for you and the Yum Yum Food Company? And indeed, where do you see the business being in 12 months time? What do you wish to have achieved by then? I think given the current situation, that predominantly any caterer should be looking to um, 
some form of deliveries online or home deliveries or local deliveries. As, you know, if you have a restaurant, that's slightly different, but contract catering, because um, including for ourselves. So we are looking into the possibility of delivering our meals to, to local families and things like that, because you have to move with these current times. And whereas I think when a lot of us started lockdown, we thought, you know, if you hold your breath for a few months, we'll come out, it will go back to normal. The whole situation is so unprecedented. No one could have predicted where we'd be now and where we're going to continue to be in the immediate future. So I think for at least a year or so, arguably until there's a vaccine, um, that we're all going to be facing this continuous um, experience where we're in and out of lockdown or curfews or restrictions, especially trying to run a business within that environment. And so for me, it's about obviously making sure my staff are safe and making sure that we have an alternative avenue if the schools were to close down again. Yeah, it's certainly going to be a very interesting time for the wider industry, as you uh, say there, and it's about making sure there are those alternative avenues in place. And I certainly wish you all the luck in the uh, the world in navigating this challenging period, Abby, for sure. Just before I um, do let you go, however, I would like to ask you, based upon your experience of working in the city, going and setting up your own business, if you could give some advice to somebody who was maybe of the younger generation, an aspiring leader looking to start a business for themselves, or maybe someone who was stepping into a leadership role in an established company for the first time what advice would you give them to really get them on the road to success my advice would be don't wait if you've got an idea or plan or you know a passion that you love doing go for it I um, spent many many years in a career that worked I enjoyed it it wasn't where my heart was my heart was been in catering and cooking and um also, expect to make mistakes. You can't succeed without them and learn from them. Don't let them knock you down. Just get up and keep going and learn from you know any mistakes along the way. It's part and parcel of the journey. But I would definitely recommend someone to just... It, it does take guts to go on your own, but if you've got a passion and a desire, I'd always recommend, especially when you're young, that's the time to kind of make your mistakes and recover from them. There are so many important things to take away from that, Abby. I think that's incredibly sound advice indeed. But also that point that you made about learning. Leadership is still a constant learning process. And even when we're in leadership roles, we are never a finished article. I think that's absolutely right. I have to say, Abby, it's been a real, real pleasure welcoming you onto the uh, the programme today. It's a shame we are just about out of time. Otherwise, I'm sure we could go on long into the afternoon. But it would be a real pleasure for me to welcome you back onto the show at some point in the next 12 months, just to see how things are coming along at the Young Yum Food Company as well and hopefully we'll have some positive news to share there. I would love that Scott and I would also like to say thank you very much for inviting me it's been lovely to chat to you and to all your listeners and I would be happy to come back and talk again anytime. That's wonderful to hear and most importantly as well Abby while all of this is still going on in the world please do continue to take care and stay safe with everything still going on. Likewise and to you thank you very much. I would also reiterate that message to all of our listeners tuning in today. Do please to continue to be considerate of others and look after yourselves during this time. It does make a real, real difference in saving lives. I was 
very happy to welcome Abigail Simon onto the programme today, founder and CEO of the Yum Yum Food Company. And coming up next, it's time for Matthew O'Neill's exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. Um, Lord Blunkett is a man who enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth, having served as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years and held a number of senior positions in the Cabinet of ex-Prime Minister Tony Blair during his premiership. He was elevated to the House of Lords was Lord Blunkett back in August 2015. That interview between Lord Blunkett and Matthew O'Neill is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? 
I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level, the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think Out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there's a a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in... uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, 
I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top, and that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice, uh, the health secretary often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate 
the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm-hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Um, These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or 
for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now 
about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are uh, the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well 
uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas with confidence with the ability to pull teams around them above all to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it now of course one of the biggest problems secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-semitism problem uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does secure need to do in response Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakira Starmer's major challenge 
is to convince skeptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, Do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.